attends church here and uh, you that are guests with us today. And uh, hopefully, when they invited you, they mentioned that we were going to uh, have a simple gospel message. And uh, we wanted the opportunity to share with you what the Bible says, what the gospel is. And uh, so that's the goal this morning. And the message will be uh, a very simple presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see it in the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 15. I, I was talking to a man one time and I asked him, I said, uh, what does the gospel mean to you? I was thinking, you know, definition. What, what, how would you define the gospel? Um, but when I asked him, and I admit that the question was a little bit misleading, I asked him, what does the gospel mean to you? And he said, oh, it means everything. And it, it should, I mean, that's, that's good, that's right. But then I said, so uh, what is the gospel? And he said, oh, the gospel is our life. The gospel is everything. The gospel is wonderful. And I said, yes. And I agree. Again, no disagreement for me whatsoever. But then I said, well, how would you define the gospel? Not adjectives, but but definition. What is it? When we talk about the gospel, what are we talking about? Are we talking about um, a feeling? Are we talking about an experience? Are we talking about um, principles, platitudes? philosophy, what are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? Because the word gospel gets thrown a lot, around a lot, but it means, what, not just its importance, but what it is, what the gospel is. What, when we say the gospel, what we're talking about is often lost on people, and we speak about it um, like, like a, a mysterious thing that we don't really grasp or know, uh, but we believe is kind of behind the scenes working in some mysterious way, like um, some special joy juice um, that's out there for us uh, to make us all feel better, better, and so on. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said to the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. As Paul preached the, the gospel to the Corinthians, I would like to preach the gospel to you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the word together and as especially we examine uh, the gospel itself, I pray that you would give us understanding and insight what exactly this gospel is and what you have done for us by means of the gospel. And I pray then that when we see it, that we would embrace it, that we would believe it, that we would lay aside all the hindrances and all the other 
things that we held to and that we would take up the gospel as it is presented in the Word of God. Please help me, Lord, as I preach. I pray that I would be able to make very clear what you've done for us and that um, when we hear it, we would believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy, I think maybe in first, second grade, I know this would be hard to imagine, but um, I got in trouble. First, second grade, you know, it happened. I got in trouble. It was in school, and my teacher, she set me up, total setup. She set me next to a boy that I liked. I liked to talk to him a lot during school, during class. While the teacher was talking, I was talking to the guy next to me. He was talking to me, I was talking to him. It was happening frequently. The teacher continually was warning us not to do that, all right, not to talk. Now this was, understand, back in the 1970s when I was a, a boy. And so it was a different time. And the teacher, back in those days, the teacher had this notion that when she told me that I was not to talk, that that meant I was not to talk. Can you believe that? <laughs> Obviously unenlightened. Obviously. I mean, this was a bygone era. But anyway, the teacher was quite insistent, in fact, that when she said I was not to talk, that that meant no talking. And so... The teacher warned me, and warned me, and warned me, and then one day, the teacher called me and my buddy who was sitting next to me out into the hallway. All right, now you know where this is going, right? Called me out in the hallway, marched me down to the principal's office, the principal read me the riot act, told me that I was talking too much, and that if I continued it, that there were going to be shall we say, dire consequences. So we went back to the class, having faced the sternness of the principal, and <clears throat> we did not learn our lesson. Let's just say it that way. And so a week or so later, I was marched back down to the office, and this time, lo and behold, the principal had, um, let's say, a... Um, means of persuasion, a mode of persuasion that he used in his office. At that moment, I found myself bending over the chair and he was applying some wax to my backside. Again, it was, you know, definitely an unenlightened age. Uh, back then in the 1970s, uh, when principals would spank you for misbehavior. Well, that's not really the end of the story there, because afterwards, of course, I was startled, shocked, and offended uh, by the spanking that I received. Um, but then I got home, and I hadn't really thought about how that was going to go. I got my wax, and I thought that would be it. I mean, that should be the end of it, right? You get your wax, and then you go home, and the phone rang. And, and again, it hadn't really dawned on me that this would also be communicated to my parents until the phone rang and I thought to myself, I wonder who that is. 
that like there was this immediate recognition that the trouble had not ended. And when my mom answered the phone, I knew immediately who was on the other end of it by the tone of her voice. You know what I'm talking about? I could hear the way she was talking, and, and so I want to tell you what I did, all right? I did something really bold. I hid behind the couch. <laughs> like I pulled it out a little ways, and I scooted back in there, and I ducked, and I thought to my, I don't know, you know, in my little first, second grade mind, I don't know how I thought that I was going to escape forever. But I just knew that I did not want my mom looking at me while she was talking to the principal. Now I say that because maybe you've been where I am, or where I was, not where I am right now, because I'm you know, not in trouble with my mom, at least as far as I know. Uh, but maybe you also have had that moment where you knew you were about to face the consequences for what you had done. And that desire to run and hide. <clears throat> King David had a, the same response. He describes it, in fact, in the 139th Psalm. These psalms that, you know, when we think of psalms, we think of praise, of adoration, of worship. And they certainly are. But the 139th Psalm you, you get the distinct impression that a thought hit David and he could not get away from it. And David said in the psalm, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now let's just pause there for a moment. Because it's one thing for my mom to find out that I was misbehaving. But it's another thing to know that God, not just that he is scrutinizing, but that he has plumbed the depths of your heart and of your mind, that he sees everything that is going on there, that he knows what you are thinking and doing. Doesn't just know what, but knows why. Knows what you're thinking when you're doing it. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Think for a moment about what God knows about you. <coughs> he went on. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Before I understand it, God understands it. Before I think it, God understands it. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. We have some, uh, shall we say, tricksy ways about us sometimes. Ways that we, you know, sometimes people can be very passive aggressive 
you know, where they, they say something, but they mean something different. They're trying to manipulate people. They're trying to steer people a certain way. Maybe they are, they have a backhanded way of complimenting a person that's not a compliment. We have a thousand ways that we can be nasty with each other, but not sound nasty. All kinds of deceptive ways about us. But the Bible says, and David recognized, that God is acquainted with all his ways. He goes on, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. You know, I remember when I was a smart aleck, years and years and years ago. And I would say some smart alecky thing to somebody, and then when they called me on it, I would, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. The Bible is saying that God knows what you said, why you said it, and what you meant by it, and knows it better than you will even admit. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. And listen to what the psalmist said now. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. As that thought gripped his heart and mind, and the psalmist dwelt on what got the intensity of God's piercing gaze. The psalmist responded the way I did when I was a first grade boy and the principal called my mom. He said, Whither shall I go from thy presence, thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? And David didn't stop there, but he thought about all the places where he might hide from God. And he understood that there was no place where he could hide. No place. Nonetheless, and this is the point I want to make here, the desire to hide, though, was very strong. Very strong. I think we all understand that. If we think, honestly think, about what God sees in us, we understand the desire to hide. This desire is not new. In fact, all the way back, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, the Bible tells us that the most, the, the most immediate response, as soon as they had sinned, and understand that God put them in this garden that was full of good things for them, and God told them that it is all yours, all yes, except this one tree is a no. And that tree, of course, 
became their obsession immediately. And then they ate it. And as soon as they had eaten of that tree, the Bible tells us that they immediately knew that they were naked and they hid themselves. That from the very beginning, that has always been our response to God. When we know that we've done wrong and when we know that God knows it, we want to hide right away. That's what we do. <clears throat> this is not a strange thing, if you think about it. God is a holy God, a terrible holy. You know, the Bible says something interesting. It says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There's, there's something frightening about beauty. And I'll illustrate this for you. I think that most will understand what I mean. If you come into the presence of a really powerful or really beautiful person, there is an immediate self-consciousness that comes over you. And a desire almost for invisibility. A desire to not be seen. Now God is this, the sum, the perfection of all beauty. He is almighty God. Super confident. <coughs> and to be in the presence of such Holiness, such splendor, the brightness of his glory, is to become immediately aware of my own flaws and my own imperfections and to be ashamed, to be self-conscious about those. And that drives us away from God. Because we're ashamed, we try to hide. And when we can't hide, we become defiant and indifferent. It's, it's a funny thing about us, but we are this way. If I can't please a person, or if I feel that I can't please that person, or I can't live up to their standards, my response quite often is to say, oh yeah, well, let me show you then. Or to say, oh well, I don't care. Now I'm telling you that the worst response that we can give to a holy God is defiance or indifference. But I want to explain, and this is why we need to understand the gospel right here. Because we cannot, we cannot. When we defy him, we will be crushed by him. When we ignore him or are indifferent towards him, we will face him. And these are not right responses. 
We can run, but we can't hide. We will face God for our sin. But we don't need to live in dread of that day. We don't need to live in dread of that day. That's the good news. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's true we can't do anything to avoid that day when we stand before God and are judged when we face God for what we've done in our lives. We can't avoid that. We can't escape it. It's true. We don't have the power on our own to appease God. There's nothing we can do that will appease him ourselves. We can't do that. But God has made it possible. God has, if, if, if I could say it this way, and this is a crass way of saying it, but you can't appease God, I can't appease God, we can't appease God. And so recognizing that God has appeased himself. God has appeased himself. Again, that's a crass way of saying it. It's probably not exactly correct doctrinally, but it's, that's, what the, that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about the way that God has appeased himself. When we had sinned, and when we had offended God, and when God's wrath was up against us, and God's demands for justice needed to be satisfied, God satisfied himself. That's the gospel right there. Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians. He said, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Now the gospel, the word gospel itself, means good news. It, uh, it, it is a literal word that means good news. So the gospel is good news, and this is the good news. I'm going to preach the good news to you here in a moment. We're coming to it. <clears throat> it's good news that when the day comes for us to stand before God, that we can know that we are reconciled to him, that we can know that we have peace with God. We can be confident in that peace the apostle described it as a peace that passes understanding. Now, I'm going to tell you why it passes understanding. Because we're all in the, in the same boat as King David. We know that God has searched us and known us. That God sees what is in our hearts, what is in our mind. We know that we are guilty. And yet... We can also know that we have peace with God. That's a peace that passes understanding. When we consider what a holy and righteous God, our God is, terrible in his holiness. And when we consider our own wretchedness, our own fallenness, our own sin, and the offense of that sin towards God, how can we expect to have peace with God? It is a peace that passes understanding, a peace that you can't describe or explain, 
but it is a peace that you can experience, the peace of knowing that you are reconciled to God, that the offense between you and God has been removed. And I want to give you the good news of the gospel in order to explain that to you. God has commanded us, in fact, to preach the good news of the gospel to sinners, and that's what we're aiming to do right here and now. But before we can understand the good news, we need to understand more of the bad news, because really, what good is good news if there's no bad news? And I'm going to tell you good news and bad news, right? It's helpful to kind of know what the bad news is first, uh, or at least... You know, if somebody comes to you and says, I have good news and bad news, you might say, well, give me the good news first. Uh, but what makes it good is that there's bad news also. And so there is bad news. And the bad news, because we can't make sense of the good news unless we know the bad news, the bad news is that we all stand before God guilty. Period. There's not... There's not a, you know, and this is what a, people will say to me, well, you know, you Christians, you put so much emphasis on sin. Why, why do you make such a big deal about that? Because really, honestly, we don't look at it the way God looks at it. Now, you know, we, we look at our sin like it's a little, you know, a little mistake, a little flaw, a little imperfection. And God says otherwise. God says that sin is hateful to him. Sin is offensive to him. <clears throat> the sense of dread that you feel at the thought of standing before God is, is a real thing. It's not, you know, you're not confused about that. If you really consider the idea that I'm going to stand before God and not have anything to hide behind when I do. See, that's the other thing, is that in our minds, we always, you know, we're able to shield ourselves. We're able to put forth, but, but <clears throat> you're going to stand before God, and all things are naked and open in the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So forget about how you measure up to other people. Forget about how your good deeds measure up to your bad deeds because God doesn't weigh it that way. Think only about the times that you have done what you knew to be wrong, what you knew God had offend, uh, would offend God. The Bible calls this sin, and we have all sin, more than just a time or two. We have all sin. And our greatest sin is that we live our lives without regard for God. It's not, it's not that we're uh, just intentionally doing wicked things, which we do sometimes, but it's that God has done all of this for us, all these great things, all these gracious things, and we disregard Him. We're not concerned about Him. <clears throat> and in addition to that, he has given us all these good things to enjoy. It's, it's as if God put us in this, this incredibly glorious place, this world that he gave to us, and filled it with all these good things. You know, like, like he moved us into a very magnificent bedroom in a very magnificent house and gave us the wealth of the house at our disposal 
and we immediately started stealing and started trashing the house. It's that level of ingratitude. Now, I know that you're thinking, I wouldn't describe my life that way. But God does. See, that's the thing that we need to remember, that God looks at it that way. God says that there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That when we disregard his law, when we disregard his commandments, that this is not a light thing. This is not an insignificant thing. Not a thing that he can gloss over. Not a thing that he can give you a pass for at all. God says that this is a serious thing, an offense to him. The, James, in his epistle, talks about the tongue. And he says that there is not a man that is able to bridle his tongue. In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. Think of the character assassinations that have been carried out by our tongue. Think about the griping and complaining that we've done with our tongue. Think about the people that we've hurt. I remember when I was a kid, the school ground, the playground taunt, you know, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not even true. Not even true. We've all been hurt by words, and we have all hurt people with our words, said vicious things to each other. And God is saying that we will give an account. Now, <clears throat> if you look at your own faults and your own sin as nothing and you tell yourself I'll be okay in the last day when I stand before the righteous judge it will be no problem let me tell you friend you are deceiving yourself you are deceived the Bible tells us otherwise and, and the Bible is the authority on these things God is speaking God is warning God is telling you the way he is viewing it, the way he is looking at it. Understand that. And you disregard that at your own risk, your own peril. <clears throat> God has given us all these good things to enjoy, but that isn't good enough for us. We, we not only uh, enjoy the things he's given us, but we also enjoy the things that he has forbidden us and pursue those things. It is ingratitude that drives us to disregard God's good gifts and to go for the things that he has withheld from us. You know, we could call it, in fact, somebody argued one time that it's embezzlement. It's a form of misappropriation that God has said. It's like you work for a really great boss who gives you really great benefits and really takes good care of you and gives you a wonderful place to work. And you're stealing pens, you know, taking staplers home with you uh, and just walking out with anything extra that's not tacked down. You're taking it home with you 
and stealing from them. It's one thing if you worked for, you know, a, the biggest jerk in the world and you took a little extra thing once in a while, but it's, which wouldn't be right, but still. But it's another thing if you're working for someone who's really good to you and you're, you're stealing from him. How could you do that? <clears throat> See, this is the thing that we need to remember. The Ten Commandments that God has given us, the Ten Commandments, which are the really the summary of God's law. Those Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. They're not the Ten Hints, not the Ten con uh, Considerations. God gives us many wonderful things to enjoy, but we steal. God's given us many wonderful gifts that will give us pleasure and happiness, but we hurt people with our tongues. God has given us relationships that are very good and healthy and right, but we commit adultery. We bear false witness. We covet. We dishonor and disobey our parents. We don't mark the Lord's day and keep it holy. And the thing is that on top of, see, God is very good to lay out for us what pleases him, what displeases him, what the, what the tree of no's are. He's very good to show us that. He's very good to tell us what the consequences will be for disobedience. He's very good to us to communicate clearly what pleases him and what displeases him. And then on top of that, God gives us plenty of time to consider our ways. Plenty of time. How long have you lived? How long have you had opportunity to think about standing before God someday? Sometimes God sends us a message, gets our attention. You're in a, a near-death event, in an accident. You have a close friend who dies suddenly, and you're confronted with the reality that someday you're going to face God. God's good to show you that, to, to confront you for a moment with the reality of your condition. In those moments, we know that we better be serious. We know that we better change our ways. But as soon as the crisis is passed, we go back to our old ways. I'm warning you, you may have 70 or 80 years to shake your fist at God, but you do not have forever. Someday you'll stand before him. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, all of us. Naked, no hiding, nothing to hide behind, nothing to offer. 
nowhere to run, and no excuse. And God is a just God. And the last thing that we want is for God to be just with us. That's the bad news, is that God is just. And every one of us is a heartbeat away from facing God for our sins. Now this idea that God measures the good against the bad is not to be found in Scripture, and it's really not even reality in life itself. I don't know about you, but I've gotten speeding tickets, parking tickets, I've had to stand before a judge for those kinds of things. The judge never asked me how many times I've kept the speed limit. He just handed me a penalty for the one time I didn't. As far as he knew, the one time I didn't. Little did he know, right? When we stand before the righteous judge, he's not, you are, he's dealing with the crimes you've committed, the sins that you've committed and not with all the others. Because, let's face it, in life and with the Lord our God, our good deeds don't make up for and don't give us a pass to do what is wrong or wicked at all. Now that's the bad news. We're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account. Our sin stands between us and God, we will be accountable for. And so here's the good news. In verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us what this good news is. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the good news. That is the gospel. I asked you before, what does the gospel mean? What is its definition? Paul defines it for us right here. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That is the gospel. That is the good news. But you might be wondering, what's good news about that? What is good news about Jesus dying, being buried, and rising again? So let me tell you a couple things with it. Two things, really, about this good news. What makes it good news and what the good news is. Now, your sin and guilt is not answered by more fervent law-keeping any more than a criminal can escape the charges by doing nice things for the judge. We still have to answer for our sins, for our crimes. We know this. All right, we have to answer for them. The law shows us, in fact, that we're guilty. That is the value of the law, is to show you your guilt. You thought that it was a little thing, it wasn't a big deal, but then somebody showed you what the law says, and you realized I'm, I'm cooked. I'm in trouble. I broke the law. I'm a criminal now. The good news is, when the law shows you that you're guilty, 
God shows you that he made a way for justice to be served so that you could be pardoned for your sin. That's what he shows you. Here's how. God must be just. If he, does, if he is not just, then he lays aside what it means that he is God. He has to be just. And so God, in order to be just, took our sins and laid them on Jesus Christ. And then carried out justice against the sin by punishing Jesus Christ. Now this is the glory of the gospel in that first of all, the torment and torture of the cross demonstrates how exceeding sinful our sin really is. If you have any confusion about how bad your sin might be, just consider what Jesus suffered on the cross. Because when he was on the cross, as Isaiah said it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God made Jesus Christ an offering for our sin. He became the sacrifice on our behalf in our place, God poured out his wrath against our sin on Jesus. He did that so that he could be just in punishing sin. Otherwise, he can't just give sin a pass. He can't just let it go. He can't just say, let bygones be bygones. He must be just in dealing with sin. And so, he provided a sacrifice, a substitute, to take our place, to die in our place on the cross, to bear our sin and the punishment for it. That's why Jesus died. God lays our sins on Jesus and then punishes that sin. This is what makes the gospel good news. But, that isn't the gospel. The good news is that God has been just in dealing with sin. That he has laid our sins on Jesus and punished Jesus for those sins. That's the good news. <clears throat> but the gospel itself is not a principle that you should believe. The gospel is a historic event, something that happened in time, in history, in our world. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was hated by men, betrayed by Judas Iscariot, sentenced unjustly by King Herod and by Pontius Pilate, he was crucified and died and buried and rose again the third day and ascended to heaven. This all happened. That's the good news. It happened. 
And because it happened in time, all of the sins that are past have been paid for if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will come to him by faith and receive what he did as being for you. Not only are all the sins that are past forgiven, but all the sins, if you will come to Christ by faith and receive him, then you will be absolved and pardoned of all your sins, past and present and future. This is what God has done for us. Because justice has already been served. Sin has been punished. God's wrath has been satisfied. So that God can be just in punishing sin and gracious in pardoning sinners. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his burial, and is rising again on the third day, God offers pardon to you as a sinner so that you can be reconciled to God, so that you can enjoy that peace that passes understanding. This is the good news of the gospel right here. The bad news is that I'm going to stand and give an account for what I've done. I'm going to face God for my sin. That's bad news. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has already Face God for my sin. That's what I meant when I said that God has appeased himself. That God has satisfied his own demands for justice. He made the demands for justice. He could hold us responsible for it. But he offers pardon. He offers pardon. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, Paul and um, Silas were in prison, in jail, and they were singing at midnight, and God caused an earthquake to come, and, and all the shackles that held the prisoners fell off, and the jailer thought that he had lost his prisoners, and he came in to kill himself, and he had heard them, no doubt, singing. And Paul stopped him and said, don't kill yourself. Don't do any harm to yourself. We are all here. And the man fell on his knees and he cried out, what must, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's really the question that remains. We see what God has done to deal with sin. We see what he's done, right? How do I make it mine? Because obviously it's not just for everyone, right? I mean, otherwise we just go on about our sinning, right? I mean, let's get really serious down to the business of sinning here. If it's for everybody, if everybody can just, I mean, just consider their sins to be absolved. No, no, no. There's still, there has to be, you have to receive what Christ has done for you. What must I do? be saved. And the apostle said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There are really two motions of believing in Christ. And the first one is turning from your sin, repenting. Turning from your sinful ways, turning from your pursuit of what is wrong, turning from your pursuit of what is offensive to God. 
and then turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turning your back on your old ways, your old life, your false religion, all the things that you thought made you acceptable to God, rejecting those things and looking to Jesus Christ alone, resting on what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, receiving the gospel and believing on Christ. That's what you must do. And you must turn to Christ for forgiveness and pardon and eternal life. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news is, if you will repent and believe that he, the death of Jesus Christ is enough to give you pardon and peace, you will be forgiven. God will give you eternal life. You'll be reconciled so that you can have a relationship, a right relationship with him. I hope that the message has, first of all, made clear to you that the gospel is an event that happened in history when Jesus Christ took our sins on himself, died our death on the cross, was buried, and rose again the third day, demonstrating that his sacrifice in our place was accepted by God. God was satisfied by, by what Jesus did. And then secondly, that you will say, I need this for myself. I need that peace that only Jesus Christ can give. And that you'll stake your hope, your future, your eternal soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's the right response when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. The right response is for us to abandon all the other things that we've pursued and to look to Christ, look at me, and being saved, all the ends of the earth, 